Swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. This week, I'm joined by Kim Curtin, host of the Unemployed and Afraid podcast, to talk about founder well-being and growth. But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the startup rundown for Tuesday, the 30th of January. Venture capital funding may have decreased by 58% last year, but there's better news for the crowdsourced funding, or CSF, sector. The 2023 CSF playbook, prepared by Birchall, shows that total funding in this space was down just 2%, with a steady $71 million being poured into startups in the food and beverage and cannabis spaces. I don't think those are separate verticals for some consumers, but okay. And most encouragingly, female-founded businesses. Food and beverage saw the largest number of successful campaigns, followed by healthcare, primarily medicinal cannabis, with a few psychedelics thrown in for good measure. The biggest CSF result for a female-founded company was Xhemp, a Tasmania-based manufacturer of hemp building products, which raised $1.5 million in October 23 with Birchall. The report points to signs of a growing maturity in the crowdsource funding industry, with 41% of all successful offers made by companies that had an annual revenue of more than $1 million reported at the time of their offers, compared to just 16% in 2020. Aquila, an Australian-New Zealand deep tech startup, has successfully trialed its innovative wireless drone charging technology, the Lightway system, in regional Victoria. This system, leveraging photonics to transmit light beams from a ground unit into a solar cell on drones, facilitates the wireless charging of drones over a 50-meter distance. This technology aims to eliminate the need for battery storage, potentially revolutionizing drone usage in various sectors including asset management, search and rescue, and coastal surveillance. Aquila's larger vision includes expanding this technology to provide global, affordable, and clean energy solutions with the possibility of transferring energy across long distances. The company's CEO, Billy Jeremajenko, highlighted the trial's success and future potential, noting the rapid advancement towards adapting this technology for larger drones. He emphasized the significant efficiency and safety benefits that indefinite drone flight could offer, particularly in remote and public areas. Aquila's progress has been acknowledged in the tech community with its inclusion in the Creative Disruption Lab and the KPMG Future Technology Program, and it plans to unveil a new brand as part of its 2024 strategy. To fully fund and scale-up program for space startups, which includes $10,000 of equity-free funding. According to Startup Daily, the SA government-backed growth ramp scale-up program is looking to help companies with between 5 and 11 employees who are keen to scale up. The program will help these companies to refine key aspects of their startup, such as their market fit and customer base. The Venture Catalyst Space Accelerator has been supporting space startups since 2018, having created 220 new jobs in the industry in that time. How far into space can $10,000 get you? I guess we'll find out. The Fair Work Commission has dealt a serious blow to anti-work-from-home employers, awarding $26,000, I guess that's two trips into space, in compensation for an employee who was dismissed for not attending mandatory in-office days. According to Smart Company, e-commerce support from Insider AU dismissed their top-performing sales rep, Tommaso Moro, 
following an incident in which Morrow worked from home so a tradesperson could fix his dishwasher. For shame. Regional director Tunk Bollock reportedly told Morrow that he was calling BS on this and dismissed him in the following days. Morrow brought the case to the FWC and won, as the commission deemed the dismissal predetermined, harsh, unfair, and unreasonable. Bollock, on behalf of Insider AU, still maintains that the termination of employment was a mutual decision. What does this guy got against clean dishes? And finally, a successful founder is back after selling her startup for $35 million, this time in the creation of an AI-driven parenting app. The AFR reports that Verity Tuck's new startup Goldie, that's G-O-L-D-E-E, uses AI to condense screenshots, emails, and newsletters to automatically create calendar invites for parents, helping them keep track of their kids' many commitments. Tuck exited her flower delivery business, Lovely, that's L-V-L-Y, in April of 2022. She was saving the vowels for her new business name. And although she initially planned to use her funds as an angel investor, promptly caught the startup bug all over again. The app is set to launch on February 5th and aims to generate revenue through subscriptions. How much it will cost, we don't know yet, but I think a better question is, is this the first step towards the robots raising our kids? And is it possible they'll do a better job? And that's it for the Startup Roundup for this episode. We'll be back in a moment. Kim Curtin is the host, creator, and producer of Unemployed and Afraid, a small business podcast. the brave self-employed, where she dives into the realities, practicalities, and self-growth journey of starting a business from scratch with the people doing it. She's also a creative and commercially-minded podcast strategist, helping brands and business owners build themselves big podcasts. There's a lot to learn from Kim's entrepreneurial journey, which started at the age of 21, and we're going to cover it all with a lot for early-stage founders to consider and learn from. Kim, welcome to The Bootstrap. You can find out more about Kim Curtin on LinkedIn. That's Curtin, K-E-R-T-O-N. Kim, welcome to The Bootstrap. Scotty, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No, I'm really excited to have this conversation. We're talking about founder well-being today. So let's get started by understanding your own journey into being a founder. I think it started pretty early for you, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I've had a real love-hate relationship with entrepreneurialism. I had my first taste of it back when I was 18 or 19. And I was working at the time at a beauty salon. I had dropped out of school pretty early. I was like, get me out of here, just get me into the workforce and ended up as a, as a beauty therapist and was working in a great salon at the time, you know, young, just enjoying life. I mean, this is before the internet and social media. I mean, it's not, I'm not that old. It was certainly before social media was what we spent most of our time doing. But I remember going to work one day and, and the person who owned that business said to me, oh, we're actually going to be selling this business because we need to focus on something else we're doing. We're doing a, a product and we need to focus on that. And I was devastated because I was loving what I was doing. You know, I felt like I'd found myself into something uh, really fun and, and I was enjoying it. And she saw my, my disappointment and, and sort of said, well, I could sell it to you if you like. And selling it to me meant, you know, I would have the the brand name and the clientele and the space, the lease, all of the products in there. So, you know, we're talking about an investment of $5,000, not significant, but significant mm. for a 19-year-old. 
<laughs> oh, yes. It was quite the journey. Uh, I could say I probably stuffed up as much as I possibly could through that experience. I didn't have any idea about profit, loss, financials, what I got sold to in advertising campaigns so easily. You remember the yellow pages and like the advertiser mm. and, you know, all the newspaper? I just got sold into all of it. So, you know, I was flying by the seat of my pants until I realized I was heading nowhere with that and managed to kind of get myself out of it before I got in too much trouble. So that was my first taste of entrepreneurialism, followed by, I would say, six other (laughs) versions across my career and a long corporate career. I'm always fascinated by people's school stories. My original professional background is education. And I talk about this a lot that I feel like we don't do a great job of helping people see diverse pathways. At the end of school, we kind of treat the HR like the be all and end all when really all, all an HR is, is indicator of is that you got a good HR, not necessarily have a, a clear pathway of success in front of you. So what was that like in terms of why you felt like it didn't work for you and what you found as an entrepreneur or a business owner that empowered you in a way that school didn't? On the beauty of retrospect, what has always been the thread has been autonomy. But now at the time, my schooling experience was certainly one that I was, I was a little bit naughty. I was a little bit chaotic. I had a lot of energy to place around. I really liked to communicate. So it is no surprise that I am a podcaster now. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time getting into trouble. And I spent a lot of time hearing from teachers that, what are you doing here? If you don't care about, or if you're not going to try, you've got lots of potential, but you're just not putting it into the right places. Uh. And a lot of those conversations, sadly, weren't particularly encouraging. You know, I had the odd teacher that would say, <laughs> you know, come on, we can, you know, we let's find a way to work together. Let's do this. But most of them are just like, oh, kid, what are you doing? Just, you know, just leave if you don't, if you're not going to try. And I remember one teacher in particular said that very thing to me, uh, which will probably break your heart as a former teacher. They, they said quite literally, well, if you're not going to try, why don't you just leave? What are you doing here? Just don't bother anymore. Just, just skip school, just leave. And I was 15 and at the time, and it took, and that was the earliest oh. I could leave at that oh. stage anyway. So I went, okay. I won't do that. And that was it. I, I do think we've made some progress in that space, but it is like a lot of things, people that go into teaching usually are people that liked school. And so understanding what people that don't, it's like math teachers are terrible, usually terrible teachers of people that don't get maths because they don't get why you wouldn't get maths, right? Yeah. Okay. That's heartbreaking, but also really encouraging for people listening that I, I think it's always important to highlight those stories because mm. we have this really conventional idea of what a success pathway looks like and there's no such thing. Right? Oh, Scotty, I couldn't agree more. You, you mentioned that you had a corporate career as well. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure at what point in bowing out of learning in the traditional sense, this happened to me, but I, I most certainly since have become a lifelong learner and somebody who isn't too afraid to throw myself into the deep end and and figure it out as I go. So yeah, on that education experience, it's funny how it quickly it changed as I grew as an adult. Mm -hmm. But after exploring a few little mini careers, you know, the beauty therapy, uh, I had another business as a personal shopper for gift registry for corporate gifts. I don't know what I was thinking there with that one, but gave it a go. That sounds fun in theory. I know. See, this is what I thought. I got really good at buying gifts. I could be paid to shop. This could be a great job. (laughs) Yeah. I had had a lot of fun with that. And through that process, I I met some 
great people. And I ended up working in events for a promotional modeling agency for two of them. And so I kind of got a bit of a handle on promotions and marketing fairly early doors. That led me to a beautiful community radio station back uh, in Adelaide where I grew up. And I was able to secure a position there. Uh, I very recently on my own podcast interviewed the man who hired me way back in those days. He's now an entrepreneur uh, himself with a brilliant agency in e-com. And we talked about that. And he said, you know, I had a feeling you just have the right energy for the job. You know, it's promotions and marketing. Radio people are high energy. They are creative. They're passionate. They're smart. They're focused on sales and, and it's fun. It's entertainment based. So I really thrived in that environment. And that kicked off a 13 year career in media. I moved into commercial radio shortly after and stayed there for a very long time, a quick dip into digital. But as anybody who works in the radio space now will know, commercial radio is essentially radio, podcasting, digital, social events, all of the above in that space. So yeah, 13 years in that high paced, high energy career. I love how in radio, you're high energy in school, you're naughty. <laughs> and like I, when I was leading in, in schools, there were two words that I would not permit. One was naughty and one was lazy mm. because I'm like, those are symptoms. What does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. That's not a behavior. It's a symptom. I literally had a teacher crying in my office once going, I think it's so unfair that we have to teach the naughty children. No. And I was just like, I don't even know how to respond to you. Are you an actual human being? What's happening? <laughs> and then what led you back into entrepreneurial work or what you're doing now? Scott, I wish I could find like the moment where this happened. And but I would say that it was a culmination of moments that led to the moment that I did the thing. But I had been in this one particular role for four years and I was working with a, a large team, a high expectation, very short deadlines in the branded content arena. So you know, my, my role was to lead the team who were responsible for creating the strategy behind the ideas for large enterprise clients to be part of the radio network in some way. There's big budgets, short turnarounds, it's high energy, a lot of people management, a lot of expectation. and. I had worked very, very hard in that role for a long time. And as anyone else working in the media will understand, the people you meet along the way there become such a big part of your life. And a role like that, it's quite difficult, well, it was for me anyway, quite difficult to separate the sense of self from the self who does the job. Now, I don't mm. subscribe to work-life balance in any way, shape or form. I think work-life integration suits me better. I like to 100%. work on things I'm inherently passionate and curious about. And at some point I had made my career there, my entire identity. It was who I, it's what I thought about when I woke up. It's what I talked about on the weekends. My very best friends were either my managers, coworkers <laughs> or the like. Yeah, I even, my still a best friend to this day and roommate at the time, you know, was, was working in the business. And so, you know, I would go home and I'd talk about work and I would think about work and just became so difficult to separate who I was. I spent a little bit of time in 2019 doing some travel, just doing the thing you do when you work in media, you know, work hard and then get as much time off as you can to go have fun in uh, European summer. And I started to gain a little bit of perspective and I noticed a few things about myself. I noticed that I would run on quite high anxious energy. I would be looking for the danger quite a lot. 
And by that, I mean, I would be like, okay, how do I plan for this? How do I prepare for this? What's coming next? How can I get ready for it? And I think that came from that energy of deadline chasing for, for quite some time. I had that perspective. I came back to work and I was like, do you know what? I'm good. I had a bit of headspace. I had some time to, to think about it. I was like, it's okay. I'm going to go back into my career because it's a great job and it was a great place to work with great people. I thought, it's okay. I can manage this. Now I know that I'm losing myself a little bit. I'll be able to manage it. The short thing was I wasn't able to do that. It's, I found mm-hmm. it personally very, very difficult to find my sense of self within that environment. I shared this information with my business coach who was generously given to me by the company. And uh, she says to me, just, okay, you know, we can, we can work through this. We can find ways to cope. And we sort of hung up from that call and I thought about it for about 45 seconds when it hit me like a bolt of lightning and just went, oh, I've got to leave. I've just got to go. I have to stop. <laughs> and so I told her this and she says to me, can you just wait? Yeah, a little while, just just wait a couple of days. I, maybe, you know, we'll phase this in, we'll bring in your leaders, we'll let them know how you're feeling, you can phase your way out. Maybe there's other roles you could do within the, you know, let's just take our time. And I completely ignored that advice, went in on the Monday and quit. And <laughs> that was challenging because I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't doing anything. I just had a sense that I needed to stop what I was doing. And only in retrospect can I see that what I was chasing at the time was more of that sense of self, that identity, to work on things I value, to retain some autonomy to my curiosity and what I spend my time working on to create value in the work that I was doing beyond meeting deadlines or meeting budgets or those sorts of things that are very important but perhaps challenging when they're the only thing. Mm. I decided I'm I'm out. I'm going to spend a few months finding myself. I'm going to try things out. I'm going to get back to my entrepreneurial spirit. And now this was, of course, January, 2020. So that was, uh, I don't know if we can swear on this podcast, but that was a huge fuck up. Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, real challenging time to find myself in market, thinking about what it is that I might want to do as my own entrepreneurial next step. At that time, I thought maybe I'll develop something. It'll be a side hustle and I'll take on some client side work or you know, maybe I'll head back to media at some stage, but it'll be in a different role, a different type of role and a different way of working. But the curveball was there. And so tell me a little bit about what you do now, and then we'll kind of unpack the well-being side of that and how our listeners can learn and apply. So now here we are, it's 2024. It's four years later since then. And, and geez, I've had some hats that I've worn and some pivots and some changes as to what it is that I do. So I host, produce, create one lady show, all things related to my podcast, Unemployed and Afraid. And on that podcast, I talk to business owners at all levels. So I talk to business owners who are pre-launch, uh, you know, moving their idea into to launch phase, who are at the other end of the spectrum who are scaling, who are growing, those right in the middle of it, local businesses, uh, e-com online businesses who are in, you know, the one, two star phase, just at all phases. I mean, you kind of get the point there. And Mm. and there's a purpose to that because uh, if I go back another layer, I found myself having to leave. I was living in Sydney at the time in 2020 and I had to leave Sydney because it was 2020 and I wasn't working. <laughs> it was expensive. So I, I had to get myself to a new place to live to give myself the space and the lifestyle possible to explore ideas. And 
I explored a lot. I started to teach yoga. It was the only thing I had planned when I left my role in radio. I was like, I'm going to go do yoga teacher training, not to become a teacher. I was like, it's just going to be therapy. I'm just going to chill out for a bit and get back in touch with you know my energy and do a lot of public crying as it turned out in those teacher training classes. <laughs> but it did start a, a process of learning quite a bit about myself and how I think and how I respond physically to uh, some of the ways that I was thinking. And by pure need, I started teaching yoga and I did that online. And when I moved to a cheaper location, I moved to Tasmania on the, which is not so cheap now, but I was living regionally um, on the East Coast in a tiny town. And so I would teach yoga there locally. I would teach privately. That was business three, I think that counts as. I started making Mm. plant-based recipes as a content creator and would get paid by clients to do that, to incorporate ingredients. Uh, So I I played with that for a little while because I'm a a passionate plant-based eater and it's something I did years ago and thought I'll pick that up again. And I started to make ceramics. And so this is where my story starts to come into line. So I hadn't had any experience making ceramics before. I just knew I needed to do something artistic and it felt like the right thing because I made beautiful food. I took beautiful photos and my plates looked terrible. So I decided to make my own (laughs) and that very quickly turned into a thriving brand. And that brand was Good Side of the Bed. It's a a brand that I have sort of had my, you know, since 2014. So, you know, quite some time now and it's worn many hats. And so I created this wildly popular range of, of homewares that ended up in beautiful Airbnbs and aesthetic homes all around the country. And I would sit there at my making desk with my headphones on because I'm an audio nerd and I would listen to podcast after podcast after podcast about business and business growth because, Scotty, at the time I felt really unsettled. I felt like I didn't know exactly who I was or what I was doing. I didn't feel confident in putting myself and what I was making, what I was thinking out to market. I was constantly seeking this clear-cut narrative about who I was, what my business was, where it was heading. And it was really in a dissonance with kind of what I was was doing. It was in a lot of internal conflict about what I wanted to do from an entrepreneurial perspective. I was kind of doing what was in front of me at the time and I felt quite good about it, but I knew I was meant for something else and I just, I couldn't get Mm. there. Yeah. So it was a lot of self-doubt that I was playing with at the time. And back to listening to these podcasts, I would jump on and I would hear stories of the successful host who had achieved success in business. And that successful host was talking to a successful person in business who had achieved $5 million in revenue in the first month and always knew this is what they meant to do and had a a loose business plan, but it just took off because it was what they were meant to do. And, you know, it all makes sense. And it was this, this beautiful story. And I just felt like, this doesn't hit where I'm at. This doesn't hit the personal challenge. And I'm having, it's making me feel like a failure. It's making me feel like I don't have any idea and I'm never going to be able to get to the place where I'm that successful person reflecting back on my growth from a PR headline perspective. And so it got me really frustrated. And that is how I ended up starting the podcast, which was a whole journey in and of itself, because there comes the, I guess, the fear of being seen, having to be really faced. There comes the classic cliche of the radio executive with a podcast (laughs) and all of the potential judgment from friends and family and previous colleagues. And, you know, but the minute I did that, the minute I did it, it started me on this journey of re-establishing my love 
of audio media and what drove me in the first instance to make it my identity. And now I don't recommend making anything your identity, but I understood why (laughs) I was so attracted to it. And yeah, uh, so yeah. back to your original question, my podcast is my, my business. It is a creator-led brand and I am also a podcast consultant for brands and business owners who want to use podcasting as a content marketing tool specifically. I play in strategy. That's what I always did. I come up with ideas. Yep. And so I look at cultural insights. I look at human insights. I look at all of those things and I marry them together with a brand purpose and create, mm. help them create ideas, but help them fall in love with the medium before all that, because you can't get into this gig without having a love for Mm. where it's come from and where it's heading. So that's what Mm. I do now. And it's coming together, but geez, I've learned a lot. (laughs) I'm really fascinated by that experience that you had of not finding the content that you felt like you needed and therefore started making it because my own experience is very similar in that I've worked in product management for quite a while. A lot of that was content creation. It was building content to help either clients or prospects or internal stakeholders understand pieces of what we were doing. And I had the opportunity to do some podcasting in that space as well. And then when I started my own entrepreneurial journey, which started sitting right in this chair in 2020, when I got made redundant from where I was at the start of COVID very happily. They were like, we're so sorry. And I'm like, no, that's fine. How much? Okay, cool. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was ready. And I knew at that point I couldn't get back on the treadmill. I feel like I need to caveat everything that we're talking about when, we, when we're talking about our work choices by saying what a privilege it is to be in that space, to be able to make those choices, because that's not the experience that most people in the world have. Absolutely. You know, we, we are incredibly privileged to be in that space. and. When I then decided, okay, I'm going to kind of do some work on my own. It was just freelancing at first. It wasn't like I thought I was going to be starting a business. And then when I realized I was, while I have been in the early stages of some companies that have become very big, I've never been the boss. And so I started listening to content and I felt like, I feel like I'm missing the first five chapters of the book here. (laughs) Exactly what you're just saying. It's like, hi, I'm wildly successful and I'm talking to another wildly successful person who probably partly wildly successful because they started with a hell of a lot of family money to begin with and aren't talking about it and Mm -hmm. (laughs) all those other pieces. Like, I don't care about the unicorn right now. I don't even have a donkey. I love that. (laughs) Great analogy. And so that's what really got me interested in this space. On the well-being topic, when you're talking about traveling and realizing, to me, it sounds like the adrenaline that you were working on or detoxing. I'm a anxiety sufferer, late diagnosis, right? I, I think I, I'm very capable. And up until my mid somethings, I hadn't really been in that position where I just couldn't juggle everything anymore. And then when I kind of hit that point, then I realized, oh, one of the reasons why I have been able to juggle so much is because I am a very high functioning anxiety, like overthinker that can juggle a lot of things. So how much of that for you was the environment and how much of that was like maybe stuff that was, was you? Well, we're kindred spirits, Scotty, I think in a lot of things. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I feel you, (laughs) Uh, but specifically on the, the question of environment, oh gosh, this just plays such a big part in both your ability to see your potential as an entrepreneur, 
thinking specifically for your audience here, but also just your ability to create a lifestyle that can accommodate what you hope to achieve professionally from specifically that environment. Again, only with the beauty of retrospect, because I have invested so much energy in looking at things like my habits, which is one of the three major, major things that founders need to address alongside all of the professional stuff. There's three major personal things. And the environment itself really lended it itself to partying, drinking, late nights, play up, show up. (laughs) Uh, I have been sober now for three years. That was a decision I made after I left that role really organically. I don't really even know how it happened. I just got bored with drinking, I think, at some point and, and maybe it was the yoga teacher training, but I feel like I'd been winding down for a while since then. And, and so I will Mm. say that that part of the environment, and I think anybody who works in startup space, I mean, you know, industry specific, so I certainly won't make this a sweeping statement, but, um, startup space, media, um, anything kind of high energy advertising creative, it comes with a lot of alcohol and, it's not designed to make us feel good about ourselves. It just isn't. And so that played a big role in, I think, my sense of self, again, on retrospect. So, you know, mm. you'd, you'd do big weeks, but then you'd go and you'd have a big night on the weekends or you would have a client function in which you're having two to three glasses of wine and so then your sleep is disrupted uh, and you don't really realize it because you can be a, a person that can function well and a baseline level of anxious sensation. You can also function quite well on a few glasses of wine. (laughs) And that was certainly my experience. I won't speak for anyone else in that, but on retrospect, uh, giving up alcohol and really paying attention to my body and what my body needed and breaking that down bit by bit by bit by learning and putting things in, taking it away, kind of just testing and learning. That has been a major driver of change in myself and my ability mm. to be- learn to believe in myself and see the wood from the trees when it comes to what's important and what's worth spending time on. So thinking about your own experience, and obviously it's not one size fits all, but what are some of the main personal problems or things that can get in the way of an entrepreneur's success? We've kind of touched on a few of them, but how would you kind of draw that together if you were advising somebody else? Such a great question. And I agree, there are so many variables with so many parts of this. But the thing is, I have had the privilege through this process of speaking to, I mean, it's got to be 120, 130 business owners now through my podcast. And now I did that because I was desperate to see myself in the stories of other people, right? But so it has (laughs) given me a position of privilege where I have been able to kind of put this together in more general terms and I can see it in myself completely. I think what gets missed in the experience of creating something for yourself, whether you identify as a founder, a business owner, a business builder, CEO, a director, like whatever your title is that you've given yourself, if you're creating a business of your own, we spend so much time focused on doing what we need to do to make the business succeed, whether that be learning certain things, getting certain people on board, seeking funding, like whatever the practicalities are of building a business, that we don't place enough emphasis on the person who needs to grow in order to become capable of achieving those measures to achieve the business. And it often becomes you know, something you do at the end or something you do when you're like, oh shit, I'm really getting burnt out here. Let me go 
find a coach, a performance coach, a business coach, a life coach. Let me go follow a bunch of really inspiring TikTokers and Instagram real people who are sharing a lot of really big headlines. Right? They're going to be able to help me be the best version of myself. And we start to outsource it again. We kind of come mm. at it with that, like, can someone, can someone help me? Mm. Can someone tell me how to do it? But back more specifically to like, what are the areas that need to be focused on? For me, it's came down to three things. The first one, and can be encapsulated as identity. And there's two parts to that, which is realizing that you have to work on then stepping into the identity of this new person from whatever you did before into this new space. That's where you have to work on, quote unquote, yourself is really feeling confident to be able to own that. And you also need to Mm. learn slowly and bit by bit as you prove to yourself to put the, I am a person, I'm doing quotation marks for the audio people. I am doing the, uh, this part of myself, like, this is what's good about me. I am this person. I am good at this thing. So for me, I'm good at brand marketing. I'm good at content marketing. I'm good at ideation. I'm good at creativity. So I always tell myself I'm shit at spreadsheets. I'm shit at, you know, financials, all of these things, right? It's not true. It's absolutely not true. I just haven't had to do them as many times as I've had to do the other thing. Mm-hmm. So it's about reframing <laughs> any way that you perceive yourself and just knowing that this is completely up for grabs. Like you can reframe your identity in any way you need to, to become the person capable. That's the first one. Uh, now, how you work on that is super, super personal. Like for me, I um, spent a lot of time learning about the mind and the body I've read really random books, you know, anything from How to Change Your Mind, which speaks to psychedelic research over the years, but it also speaks to different challenges in mental health and uh, different changes in the industry, different effects from external. I learned so much. Obviously, my yoga teacher training from a somatic sense, from a physical sense, I went down that pathway. And bit by bit, you start to kind of pull these things back. The second thing is ego. It's a real motherfucker. But in so many different <laughs> ways, because your ego can be your best friend or your worst enemy. And for me, my ego has constantly, still does, constantly gets in the way of me feeling confident enough to say, hey, I'm doing this thing or here's an idea that I've got. It's not fully formed and feeling safe enough to have feedback on that idea and not taking it personally. Learning to promote yourself. Now, this may not be exactly the same across all people and all genders in particular, but learning that it, it is not at all embarrassing gross to promote yourself. And I'm, I'm taking that learning from a great, great PR professional called Adette Barry. She says, it's not gross to promote yourself. And that really landed with me. I was like, yeah, straight. It is not, but it's practice. It's absolute practice. I'm a big Odette fan and I've recorded an interview with her for my other show that hasn't actually gotten to air for a number of reasons, none to do with Odette, but we, we will get that done. And we were mm-hmm. just chatting today about needing to get her here. Love, love. She love. Is, has been hugely influential to me in a number of ways, both, oh. both professionally and personally with the development of her platform Launchpad, uh, which she's co-founded yep. here in Australia with Chris Edwards. Um, because through that, I and mean, it comes back to my point on ego, you start to make business friends. And now I'm not just talking about people who are going to pump each other up or people who are going to be in engagement circles and things like that, because that's, that's not what I'm here for. It's none <laughs> of the falsity. It's those people who you can see yourself in, who you can feel confident saying, I'm really struggling today with this problem or this block personally. Can you help me work through something? 
it's hard to learn to reach out. It's hard to learn to say what you don't know. It's hard to not have a perfect narrative. Or like my business has changed under the same name three times. Like that's really yep. hard, but I, I won't let go of that brand name because I believe in it. But that's hard that's to then be known as different things. There's a lot of ego involved. So that's my point on the ego. There's a lot of work you have to do there to get over yourself. And I do think that there, it, there's a really great space for finding the people that can help you with that. But constantly, I get back to my first point, constantly outsourcing it, going, I am struggling. Let me find a coach. It can be a great option if you find the right one. It can also be very noisy in the social spheres at the moment. And you can also get <laughs> very overwhelmed and, and stop yourself from doing anything. And the last one is habits. I mean, we talked about this already, but the habits that you put in place for yourself. And I will only ever get the right level of woo-woo with this stuff because I love a bit of woo-woo, <laughs> but not full steam because it's just not who I am at my core. But trying things and seeing what works for you. For me, it's been sobriety. For me, it's also been widely learning. That's a habit I have of reading every single day, anything from random fiction to really esoteric nonfiction to business fiction, uh, nonfiction. It's been journaling. It has been meditating. That has played a role in my own way. And I have to, you have to find your own way, but you have to look at your habits. How do you value sleep? Do you want to be, what do they call them? Like the 5 a.m. Oh, I don't work nine to five. I work five to nine or oh, I don't know, something. There's something like that. Like that's great. If that's how you identify and work best, test that habit for you. But it's not the only yep. way, you know, find the habits and don't feel bad if somebody's habit that they promote as the be all and end all doesn't work for you. Just keep going and finding the things that support you to keep growing your business. So much to unpack there. The, the way you've laid that out makes a lot of sense. I think in that first point, to me, that stepping into what it means to be a founder, to be a business owner is so hard and it's different for each person in terms of the bits that they feel comfortable with and the bits that they don't. Mm. And often what I find is people just want to do more of the thing that they are comfortable doing to try and grow their business and then make the bits they don't feel comfortable doing somebody else's problem. And so particularly sales where <laughs> yes, a lot of, I would say most of us in the space, that's not the main, that's not the driver. The driver is, I've got this idea. I've got this thing I think would really help people. I've got something that I, I would really like to get out there, particularly in Australian culture, want to self-promote. And I've been on this a lot lately with some of my clients, which is until you can sell this, nobody else can sell it. Because at the start, what people are actually investing in or believing in is you and your vision. Absolutely. And so it doesn't matter if you don't feel like a super upfront person or you'd rather be in a basement writing code or whatever. And maybe you should be. But until such time as somebody else can actually share that vision with you, and no one else can can sell it. And the longer that you try and fill in your gaps, because I, I see what I see people and like I'm I'm a, I'm a coach, I'm a consultant, and I see people where when you actually get into the the history of what they've done, where they have gone from consultant to consultant to consultant, trying to find the magic bean to grow the thing that they don't think they can do themselves, and it just ultimately it doesn't work. And they either come to a point where they realize it and step in and do it, or it all goes to, to pot. If I go back to like my early leadership experiences, because I became a 
like a deputy headmaster of a private school pretty young, right? And it was a boys' school. It was, oh, so toxic. And, and I was like, you know, I'm a deputy. I've got to work out how to behave like one. I'm leading all these men and whatever. And then after about three months, I was like, I can't be that. I am a dork. Like I actually got to roll into that, being super comfortable in that, not trying to be something that I'm not. And the more that you find that comfort in that, then I think the less your ego actually gets in the way. Because when I look back at my early, some of those early experiences, or even before I was a leader, where I was like, I I didn't, I really, it's not like I didn't have good relationships with people, but I was very judgmental in my own mind and probably an asshole sometimes because of my own insecurity, right? And needing to kind of pump myself up to feel like I was something that I, that I wasn't. And so being kind of comfortable with what you don't know makes you then able to work out, what do I need to do here? Do I need to learn this? Do I need to find someone that can teach me? Do I need to find someone that I can partner with to do this? Because either I find founders, they want to be the expert. They need to be the expert on everything. They have to be the smartest person in the room, no matter what you're talking about. Or they will put themselves in the less than box where it's like, oh, I don't know anything about that. Mm -hmm. I can't. And like, you know, particularly I do find with, with my female clients where they are much more likely to be in that second group where they're like, oh, I can't, you know, I don't know anything about whatever. And I'm like, just channel your inner mediocre white guy. Like, because <laughs> <laughs> you're so much more capable. But often, oh, well, I find non-technical founders can do that with tech and vice versa, right? So it, it is tricky. And then habits, love. And, and I think there's two things there. One is what I love about working for myself is like my routine, my rhythm is not normal in terms of I work really well early in the morning and late at night. Mm-hmm. Me too. 3, 3 p.m. <laughs> is nighttime for me. And my partner works a really full-on job that takes place during the day. And so when I enjoy being able to kind of get keep the house moving, get people fed, do all those things and really kind of talk to people at night because my parents were sat in front of the television from like 6.30 until they went to bed and it was just like this no-go zone. So you were just on your own, right? And we, we've kind of gone the opposite. And then my wife goes to bed and I'm like, I'm ready to work again. And that is harder to do. That's one reason why I find a lot of this pushback against remote work so asinine because it is like if you actually let people work in the rhythm that they work at and they have deliverables that they can work on in that way, how can you then accuse them of not being engaged? It's just like, you don't feel like you're in control because you don't know what to do if you don't have people to lord over in the office. That's my take. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I agree with everything that you've just said. And even right back to that self-deprecating nature that we sometimes fall into when we're doing hard things and when we're hyper aware of how people are interpreting us. Absolutely. Your point about who we are in one environment being actually a positive for another environment. You know, I was always told that I was very quote unquote passionate, uh, read highly emotional. You know, I would come into, I'd be like, Oh, this, I've got this idea, this idea. Like, Oh no, this deadline's bullshit. No, we can't do it that way. You know, and in the right environment, that's fantastic. But in other environments, it's not your point Mm. around our 
rhythms and our, our ways that we find what, what works best for ourselves. I wrote a, an article on this recently for, for Smart Company because I'm very passionate about the um, inappropriate discourse that exists around why people leave nine to fives or why people leave career, corporate careers, being employees. So who works nine to five? So. But the why people leave being an employee for entrepreneurialism, because I'm really passionate about actuality behind it. And I think what drives so much of our need is the autonomy to be able to work how we need to, to be successful and on the things that we want to work about. So the value piece, and it's, it's those two things together. And that sometimes can result in the entrepreneur doing what you do, which is working morning, early, having a break, doing other things, working in the night. Sometimes that can be can, uh, kind of taken on board by other people as, why are you doing that? Like, it's not, it's not helpful. Like, do it this way, you know, fit into this format or, you know, your family members or friends will be like, can't you just take a day off? Don't you work for yourself? And it's like, no, literally, I have 15 jobs. I'm a founder. Like, this is, this is not <laughs> it, you know? So it's not around doing less work. It's working in a way that works for our energy. All of our rhythms are different. We're all not really meant to fit in these nine to five structures. It certainly suits one gender over the other, but it is about finding that rhythm that works for us and works for yeah. us in our, in our own way and not being, having to apologize or ask for that. You know, that would always be the thing that would kill me working for someone else. I'm like, no, no, I, I actually don't have the energy to ask you if I can just like not work on this one particular day for these three particular hours. Like it's just, <laughs> can I just figure that out yeah, myself, yeah. please? <laughs> I mean, again, there's so, there's so much privilege in being able to to do that, and there are a lot of jobs that don't like in teaching. You mm. you are hyper accountable for your time because at the end of the day, our main job is let's make sure the kids don't die, right? And so you can't just kind of Very say important. let's all work from home today mm. because like, um, but even even in that space in education, there's a lot more flexibility for part time work than there was 10, 15 years ago, even for leaders of like, if I can do this role, but I can do four days. And like, is that having a quality leader in that space that can sustain four days a week or somebody average five days a week? Like, what would you, what would you choose? And, but it's that kind of that, that thinking, I think that we need to be able to articulate our needs, but then also understand that there are going to be times where an employer or a workplace can't accommodate that. If it's a create your own reality job, I call them sometimes where people are like, I just really want to do X and Y, but not the rest of the alphabet. And you're like, so you don't have a job that does that. So you're going to have to find another one, but you've got to know, know yourself in that point. I really am interested in your like decision to be sober and what you're talking about in terms of the, the prevalence of alcohol in these spaces, because I am not a a social drinker. I grew up in the States. I grew up where the drinking age is 21 and was, it is now everywhere, but it was in most places. I don't think that that works very well because I think it just makes it more forbidden. And then you have to do it more underground. I saw very early people around me getting really unwell and losing control. And I was like, I just don't want to do that. Like I don't. And so I feel very, very fortunate. But then there are times in particularly in corporate where it makes you feel out of place. What am I kind of missing out on? But I'm like, you know, I don't need to see my colleagues get sloppy drunk at the Christmas party and embarrass themselves. Like, it's okay. But I find that in the startup space as well, that a lot of the community 
events are very alcohol oriented and and I feel more and more like a lot of this stuff is starting to feel more like a Contiki tour <laughs> than just like an actual startup event. Like we've got something coming up where it's like the world's great stuff during the day and the world's biggest party at night. And I'm like, who, who is that for? That's, that's not for your bootstrapping founders. That's for the young people that work for the VCs and the things using founders money to throw parties for themselves. So how have you found that in terms of operating in those things? Do you just not go or do you go and not drink or what do you, what do you do? Cause I just don't go. I would rather stab a fork in my eye than go to the startup rave. <laughs> I mean, anything with the, with a word before it that ends with rave, like that's always going to be an interesting time, but no, I think, um, to answer your, your question specifically about what I do now, this has differed over my sobriety journey. Like most people who decide to stop drinking and back to your point, there are many, many different scales of privilege mm-hmm. associated with that. And there's also many many scales of relationships to alcohol that can be in this sphere. So I will absolutely only speak to mine, which was it was completely embedded in the culture of my life. And I think many people will relate to them. I in particular, not that there's any uh, scale that this should be perceived on, but I wasn't somebody who self-identified as um, having an active like problem with it in that it was really impacting my my life and my um, sort of structure to my life. and But what, I just found that it wasn't healthy for me. And I think that's enough mm. reason to stop drinking. It doesn't, you know, sometimes it does get glorified in public media that the only people who stop drinking are those that have a problem with it to the point that it um, brings their life down to a place where that's, that's really unsafe for them. And, and, geez, like I have so much respect for, you know, the, the journey of addiction and how challenging that is, but that's not the space that I'm speaking from. And I'm speaking more from what you described, which is the, the casualness of the culture of drinking. And I have come to realize that that's actually where my problem with it lies is that when did it become normal that in order to celebrate a big moment, we drink a depressive. So I'm just, I'm just going to leave that there as a side thought. <laughs> it's somebody's profiting off this and it's not me. But uh, how, I, how I've managed it has changed as my confidence with not drinking has grown. When I first started not drinking, I would dread going to these events because I'd feel so self-conscious that I didn't have a drink in my hand as a woman. I would naturally get asked if people knew me sometimes even if they didn't, I would naturally get asked, are you expecting? And I was like, wow, that is so deeply personal and inappropriate. Uh, It is just the look, the look you get, are you having a break from drinking, are you? And I found that really frustrating. Mm. So there was a time Mm. where I avoided those circumstances and those sorts of networking events that revolved around drinking, I most certainly avoided in the first instance because I didn't feel particularly comfortable. But then I decided again, well, this is an, uh, alcohol is an industry that was if we go back to industrialization, there's a reason it was created and it's, it is heavily commercialized now. It's, you know, the, when you look at the advertising, we can't be that far away from heading the same place that gambling is headed in terms of advertising, surely. But it's a podcast for another day. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it was about, well, there's nothing, like I, I can find the confidence to go and have these conversations and it's not about me if somebody else is uncomfortable by the fact that I'm not drinking, first of all. 
Now, do I enjoy those sorts of environments where the alcohol intake gets like quite heightened and it gets to that level where people start to get sloppy? No, but that's always when I bow out. So it does come like anything in this journey with owning a business, with being a founder, with being somebody who is sober. It takes a little while for you to feel comfortable with that identity of that and being able to step into a space and just go, I actually don't need this because I've proven to myself enough times that without it, I'm just as comfortable as with it. Because it's a super crutch, Mm. right? You stand there with a beer in your hands. You're like, you're automatically on a level with somebody. It gives you an ability to create a connection because you're both doing something. Cheers. It gives you that feeling of like pump up. You have a night out. You have memories together. So you don't have any of that when when you go sober, but it does make you start to fine tune your conversation abilities. It makes you uh, fine tune your confidence and, you know, you find new ways to make connections with people. So, I mean, I could wax lyrical about that journey of sobriety, certainly all day. And, and I don't want to steer us off too far from, you know, the experience of it in, in startup land, but, but you're right. Too much of it exists around, around alcohol being the thing that brings us together. And, and I think that there is no professional experience more daunting than doing your own thing. And so naturally um, the connection ability that alcohol can give to you can be perceived as very, very helpful. And I think as time goes on, mm. you know, you, you may or may not realize that it, it is helpful. And for, yeah, for me, it's certainly been <laughs> more helpful not. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it's very interesting on just on the topic of alcohol, but also when we think about that wider space of well-being and habits, as you said, that there are lots of different things that we use as crutches at times. And, and I think particularly when you are creating and you're having to innovate a lot, there are a lot of things that we can use as procrastination tools, mm-hmm. which they mightn't get you drunk. You spend two hours on TikTok instead of actually mm-hmm. getting the thing done that you need to are get done. Are you in time. my screen time and- history uh, right now, Scotty? Are you? <laughs> no, no, I'm talking from my own experience. I managed to... I've managed to train TikTok finally that all I really want to see is animals and the occasional video of people falling down because I just find that that funny, Um, but not not all the time and not if they've actually gotten hurt. It's just an easy way to kind of zone out and sometimes you need to allow yourself that time, but then when it becomes Mm -hmm. like, I cannot get shit done here, that's when looking at your routine, looking at your habits is something that's so important. And I think we all we all want it when we're blocked or the business isn't growing in the way that we want or things aren't moving. There, there's lots of ways to avoid dealing with that because the the blocker when you're the founder, the blocker is always you. Always. Bottom line, whether you want to admit it or not, there's something that you're still doing that obviously doesn't work and you can't let it go, or something that you don't want to do that you actually have to do to move it forward. And I, I see people, I call it, it's like rearranging debt chairs of the Titanic, right? They're like you know, going over old emails about what went wrong a year ago. And I'm like, you are literally sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Like why that this is pointless. What are you going to do? Now? <laughs> so mm-hmm. it can be lots of things. Oh, yeah. Look, we have moved all over the place, but I think your story is super interesting. Your take on this is interesting. Last question. If you were going to talk to a founder and just give one piece of advice about this space of, you know, how to look after themselves, what would it be? Because I'm, I can never stick to a brief. I'll give you two. <laughs> one, one, is, uh, one is professional, one is personal. And on the professional front, I would say that where you think you are heading is going to change. 
and you have to get comfortable with that. So you may sit in that seat and you may register that domain for that idea or whatever your first step is. You have a vision in your mind at that stage of who you will be five years and you will be shocked at the pivots that will just happen without you trying and the way you have to show up for yourself. So I would definitely suggest learning the art of letting go when it comes to your vision and and allowing your energy to change as it needs to for whatever the end goal is going to look like. So that's that's the first Mm -hmm. one. And the second is have some faith in yourself that you know what you need to do for yourself when it comes to your well-being. What works for me probably isn't going to work for somebody else. And only through the act of valuing yourself as much as you value the business that you're creating and trial and error will you find what you need to be the best version of yourself to become the person capable of achieving whatever the goal is. You just have to try and trust yourself at the end of the day. Take advice, put it with a grain of salt and just keep trying your own thing. I think in in what you're saying, it, it reminded me of one piece that I'm often talking to founders about, which is a tolerance of ambiguity. It's a really important skill. And it is something that we we don't like. We don't like to kind of not know what's going to happen or not know what the outcome is going to be. And until you get to that point where you are at ease with that, and and I, I find some people where they don't have the ability to actually, like it's not a good fit for them trying to start their own business or be an entrepreneur because they don't, the, the unpredictability of it is just too stressful, right? And when you're, when you're more comfortable in, in ambiguity, I think you are more able to back yourself in what you know and not, not stress so much about what you don't. So, you know, all of those things. We could talk for a long time and we probably should do it again. I'm going to stick to time now and say thank you so much for the chat. And I really appreciate everything that you've had to share today. Thank you so much, Scotty. It's been such an engaging conversation. I love conversations that go on a tangent and allow exploration of thought and you've created a space for that. So thank you. And I'm excited to listen back to all the chaos, but excited to support your podcast and these conversations as well. And that's it for the bootstrap for this episode. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. And of course, We'd love a positive rating and review to help others find our program. Even better, share the show with a friend, give us a shout out on social media, tell your mom, she'll love it. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search the Bootstrap Startups from Scratch. We're on Instagram and Facebook and our YouTube channel is launching soon. The Product Bus is also on most platforms and you can interact with the Bootstrap posts there. We'd love to hear from you. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the Product Bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen, and Declan McGee. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the Product Bus. Edited by Sammy Perriman. Original sound design by Rob Clark. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch.
Swivel. Swivel.